Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm amazed how many people own stocks. They, they would not be able to tell you why they own it. They couldn't say in a minute or less why they own it. Actually, you really pressed them down to say, the reason I own this is the sucker's going up. There's enough cash in the financial system, and there is an infinite amount of cash at the Federal Reserve, an infinite amount of cash. put that check in a money market mutual fund. Then we'll reinvest the earnings into foreign currency accounts with compounding interest, and it's gone. So they had to do something. All they had left was just to print money and start buying things. And that's what they did. Put buck artists to come and go with every bull market. But the steady players make it through the bear market. They say money can't buy happiness. Look at the fucking smile on my face. Hello and welcome to Market Makers, the number one Swedish investing podcast on tech and growth stocks. Normally, we host this show in Swedish, of course, but since we have a very special guest for you this Christmas Eve, we decided to release an English version as well. But if you speak Swedish, I would recommend tuning into the regular episode 163. And for all of the English-speaking listeners, we welcome you to an hour of trading insights and lessons with Mr. Jack Schwager himself. Jack Schwager is probably best known for his best-selling Market Wizards series, now with a new installment, Unknown Market Wizards. Mr. Schwager is also co-founder and chief research officer at Fundsider.com, a firm that seeks to find undiscovered trading talent worldwide. He is also a frequent seminar speaker and lecturer in a wide range of topics from characteristics of great traders to technical analysis and investment fallacies. Before we get started, we would like to extend a big thanks to Nordic Auto Trading Society and Autostock for making this interview possible. 
We also want to remind all of our listeners that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. Now over to Mr. Jack Schwager. So welcome to the show, Jack Schwager. For those of our listeners that haven't read your books or heard about you, can you give us a, a brief background on you and your book series? Yeah, sure. Uh, so um, what I'm best known for is, uh, I mean, I've written about a dozen books. The ones I'm best known for, though, is the uh, Market Wizard series, which is a series of books, the first of which, um, I mean, the first one, I didn't know it was going to be a series, but the first one was... Uh, 1989, and the most recent one just just came out November. Um, and they're basically uh, books where I interview great traders. Uh, in most cases, uh, people traders that are very well known. In this particular, in every book, though, not in every book, but in most books, I've also had people which were not known. But this book was totally focused on on what I, well, as the title suggests, unknown market wizards and the ideas to speak to the people who have succeeded extraordinarily well in the markets for long periods of time and to try to learn from them what what they do and how they think and what their experiences was and what lessons they have of the rest of us, etc. So what made you interested in trading and how did you get started? Basically fell into it. I, I'm not one of these people who uh, had an ambition, ambition to be a trader or had any thoughts of a career related to markets or anything like that. I was basically uh, just coming out of graduate school with an economics degree and was looking for an analytical job. And it so happened that the first job that I found uh, was an analyst position for a futures analyst position. Um, and uh, ironically, as it would turn out, the position that I was taking <clears throat> was being vacated by a fellow called Michael Marcus, who in later years ended up being the first chapter of the first Market Wizards book. Oh, so yes, I, the original question, I got interested in trading. So by virtue of becoming an analyst in markets, I mean, once you're kind of, your job is analyzing markets and making recommendations, it's a very short step to, you know, doing it yourself. And how do you find these traders, uh, the market wizards? It feels like the, especially the unknown ones must be very hard to find. Yeah, well, let's talk about the unknown ones. I mean, this most recent one. I basically had three three ways I found these people. Uh, one is, um, well, I'm also involved with a startup you know, on the bio. Okay, I, I only talked about the books. I've done lots of other things. But currently, I'm also involved with a startup called FunCeder.com which is basically a platform for traders providing free analytics on perform, you know, performance analytics and stuff like that. The idea of the, uh, you know, our, our purpose of providing that is not to, you know, we're not a charity for traders, but the idea was to uh, um, start to have this site, which would draw traders to it uh, and build a database of hopefully uh, superior traders. We, we assume that the, the underlying assumption of the whole company was there's probably lots of traders worldwide who are extremely good, but nobody knows who they are. They don't manage any money. They're just trading their own account quite happily. They'll never have a chance to manage any money because they don't have the right pedigree. They're not in the right country or whatever. So this was a way of finding uh, undiscovered trading talent. So actually, uh, you know, a number of traders in this book did come through, you know, from Fun Cedar. 
Uh, I also personally knew some of the traders. One, uh, the, the chapter one, in fact, a uh, fellow by the name of Peter Brandt, who is actually a friend, and um, I've always admired his perspectives on markets and wanted to immortalize it in a book. And so, uh, so I knew him. There were two other traders who had reached out to me uh, in the past, in the, pre, the year prior to my writing this book, for other reasons not related to uh, the book. Uh, but I knew of them through that. And then, so again, I knew them. And I knew through meeting them for other purposes that they had extraordinary backgrounds as traders. And so uh, so that's so that was a second source. And the third one is I just uh, used my Twitter account to say, hey, I'm doing uh, I'm doing a book on great trade you know, on, on undiscovered uh, great traders. If you know anybody who uh, is uh, who has a superior record of at least 10 years, uh, um, uh, exceptional record or whatever word I use, but superior isn't strong enough of a word. Um you know, let me know, or or if you are one, let me know. And I got many hundreds of uh, responses. So could you share with us some of the, uh, the probably the most surprising stories? Yeah, because in your new book, you have many, maybe unlikely characters who became successes. You had Jason Shapiro, who blew up his million-dollar account multiple times, a guy trading through social media. You have a bellhop in Czechoslovakia who's day trading stocks. You have a tennis player. You know, you have Peter Brandt. Yeah. What do these people have in common that makes them uh, stock market wizards? Well, um, first of all, it's not the methodology because people you're referring to have totally, totally different methodologies. So that's that's certainly not it. One thing they all shared is they have very good risk management processes. Uh, for, you know, I would say with one exception in this book, uh, risk management is an extraordinarily critical part of their approach. In the other case, uh, the person basically knows when he'll get out. It's based upon uh, his methodology. So it's it's not so much he'll, he doesn't have a risk methodology where he will, you know, risk a certain amount to get out, but he knows he'll, when the reason for this being in a trade is no longer valid or it becomes known, then I'll get out. So he still has a process. But that's probably the most common denominator. Um, they're, they're usually, they, they tend to be pretty obsessive about what they do. I would say that was that's true of an awful lot of people in this book and probably market wizards in general. So literally just extreme devotion to developing their, their approach and you know, spending many, many hours and tremendous preparation and uh, discipline and so forth. So it's not a casual thing, you know. Uh, they're not These traders aren't traders who just kind of sit at, you know, look at the screen and say, oh, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to sell that, you know. That's not their, that's not, they, they've really done a lot of preparation and work uh, uh, behind the trades. If we switch perspective and look at, have you met some awful traders? And do you see any defining traits for what makes a bad trader? Oh, sure. And I often ask, and it, you know, it's not so much I, I, I meet awful traders. It's, uh, I mean, most people aren't good traders, you know, if they're just ordinary people. Uh, but I ask the people I interview a lot of times what their experience is with, with people who, what what's the difference between, you know, winning and losing, you know, what, what characteristics do losing traders share? And I also have my own perspectives, but uh, there's lots of things. So, I mean, this is only in like a, a part, very partial list. Um, typically, they don't have a, a good risk management process. Uh, 
That's probably the most common reason uh, traders fail. Losing traders let their emotions get in the way. They they take trades on impulse. They'll do stupid stuff like they'll they'll take a trade on impulse. Well, of course, if you've got an impulse to, get, to take the trade and you're really not skilled, so do lots of other people, and you're probably buying the high and selling the low. You know because it's a, because you, if you feel panic or you feel euphoria. That's because something happened in the market, which a lot of other people are reacting to, and that, those are not the people making the money. You know, the people making the money are already in the trade, or they're going the other way. Um, so, uh, so that emotional aspect, and emotional aspect manifests itself in lots of ways. Uh, like one, one, one good example can comes up in this unknown market wizard's book with one of the traders who, who is not a losing trader, obviously, but. In his earlier days, before he became a really good trader, um, he had a perfect example of what I would call a revenge trade, which is a typical kind of thing uh, a bad trader would do. So, and that is, uh, people who lose money in a trade or a market will have a tendency to want to make the money back, but not just make it back, but make it back in the same market. Uh, it's like the show, you, you, you market, you don't understand. I was right, you were wrong, and. Uh, I'm going to show you. I'm going to get the money back. You know, it's that type of reaction, and all all those types of emotional reactions are just wrong, and they they, they contribute to people losing. Um, but like in this particular case, this trader had learned some, you know, learned a little of the craft, and had developed a methodology, and had made like sixty or seventy percent over the course of a year. He had a trade. The, this was kind of. I think this was with uh, maybe the. Uh, I think it might have been the uh, the second Iraq War. I forget which, but it was it was some uh, announcement which came out which should have. Uh, which I don't remember exactly what the trigger was, but it should have been uh, a, a bullish. Uh, I'm sorry, it should have been a bearish thing for the market, right? Like the beginning of a war or something like that. And uh, he went. He was short, you know, uh, and the market went down initially. He added more, and he, but then he got stopped out, and so. It's just that the you know the market has to go down on this, and so he kept on shorting. Repeat, he kept on getting stopped out. He had stops, but he kept on getting stopped out. So he did this five times during the same day, trying to make the money back in the same market. And by the end of the day, he had wiped out his profits for the year. So that's a typical. That's a good example of what a, what losing traders do. They let their emotions dominate their, what they're doing. Uh, people who who win basically are very calm, centered, focused, unemotional. It sounds like this, that you don't believe that everybody can be a good trader. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, well, I mean, people can approve. Uh, not to sell my books. I mean, I believe I believe if you read any of the Market Wizards series or all of them or whatever, I, I mean, if, I think if you read it and were open-minded and took some of the lessons, that you'd be better off. You'd... you'd You'd even at the at the least you'd lose less money. Hopefully, you you if you're losing, you'd become a winner, a net winner. Um, and uh, if you're winning, maybe you'd win more. But you know, I don't make pretense. I mean, and some people, uh, you know, actually, a number of people in this book read my original book. So some people do become market wizards, right? So I mean, that's a possibility. But it's not. It's only going to be a minority. So it's like saying. Uh, if you're a great basketball coach and put out a bet or you know a video on how to play, you know another thing you have to do right for basketball. Maybe people watch it and they become better at the game, you know, it's playing. But 
it's ridiculous to expect most of them, or forget most of them, for any meaningful number to become professional, right? It's uh, only a, a small number of people have the skill to be exceptional in any any field, and uh, trading is the same. So yeah, I, I I only think a small percentage of people have the, have whatever it is, the inner personality, character, skills, whatever, to to be great traders. But I think most people can become at least probably net profitable if they apply if they apply all the right lessons. I I listened to an old interview of yours where you I forgot who you quoted, but you said human nature is so poorly attuned to trading that most people do worse than random. Why is that? Yeah, so that first of all, I was quoting Bill Bill Eckhart, yeah, who said, like you say, our human. His point was that we have evolved to be. Uh, you know, through evolution, you know, we've evolved to seek comfort. You know, humans seek comfort. That's just, you know, whether it's, you know, shelter, warm food, sex, anything, and it's always seeking comfort, right? And that nat- those natural instincts to do what's comfortable do not do not work in the markets. The markets don't pay anybody to be comfortable. On the contrary, so uh, you know, like for example, like well, uh, and I'll get to the worst and random. So. But an example of seeking comfort would be, uh, let's say you have a law. Let's say the market, you're long, the market goes down. Uh, it's not acting the way you think it should have. Um, you say, well, okay, I probably should get out, but I'm down now. I'll get I'll get out in the first update, you know, or I'll get out when I'm even. You you sort of, that type of thing. And then when you make that decision, you feel a little relief because, well, you got hope. Maybe tomorrow the market will be up and I'll do better getting out than today. That feels comfortable. So that's an example. I give you lots of examples. But those type of decisions that make people feel better um, are usually the wrong decisions. Now, what Eckhart was saying is that humans are so poor, our, our inner nature, the way we have evolved, is so poorly attuned to making correct decisions in the markets that most people will do worse than random. And the emphasis here is on worse than random. So he's not merely saying like the popular thing about, well, you could take a monkey and have the monkey throw darts at the Wall Street uh, quote page, you know, stock page, and the picks, you know, those darts will do, the monkey will do better as well, not better, the monkey will do as well as professional money managers. So, you know, he's not saying that. He's saying the monkey will do better because the monkey is uninhibited by these natural human emotions. That's what he means by worse than random. So how do you go from worse than random to what you just said that you think most people can be net profitable is you know is that through technique or is it through psychology? Sure. So the first so so you have to realize that you you have to you have to trade with methodology, not with emotion. Uh, now, when you become really skilled, you might have intuition, which shouldn't be confused with emotion. That's because you have a lot of experience and consciously or subconsciously. You may see something and it reminds you of something and you think the market's going up. Now, it's not mumbo-jumbo. It's because you've seen it in your past 10 other times and you kind of know at some some level and you, you kind of experienced it. And so you have this instinct to do it, even if you don't connect the reason why. So that interest, I'm not talking about intuition, but I'm talking about the emotional stuff that, we've been, that we've gave, I gave examples about before. So the, the, the first thing is, You've, you've, got to, you've got to develop a methodology that has some sort of an edge. Because if you don't have a methodology that has an edge, there's no reason why you should make money. I mean, there's just absolutely 
no reason at all. So that that's a process of work and discovery. Not everybody's going to come up with something, and but but that's a starting point. So you have to have that. You have to get rid of emotions uh, by um, trading from a plan. You know, you you've got a methodology. You trade with your plan. You have to have risk management as part of it. So you know which will usually entail knowing where you're getting out and sticking to it, the discipline to stick to it. So by by going from emotional, spur-of-the-moment types of decisions and listening to other people and all this other stuff, which doesn't work and will just end up losing money, you go to where you've developed a well-defined methodology that has an edge that you have the discipline to stick to and that is important methodology is a very rigorous risk management process that assures you won't lose too much on any given trade or beyond a certain amount on, a, on an aggregate number of trades. So that's that's part of the process. When you go into and start talking about methodology, how do you define that your method, methodology is actually working and it's not just luck? You're just having a really lucky streak. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's, not, it's not overnight. So first of all, every person got to find their own methodology. Um, you got to go towards things that you feel comfortable with. Um, you know, if you, you know, some people be, be comfortable with fundamentals, some people be comfortable with a technical approach. I have one trader in this book who wasn't comfortable with either and came up with a completely different approach. <laughs> so, but the bottom line is you have to find, you have to go where you're comfortable and then try, you know, read what you can on it, watch the markets, re, you know, record your experiences, start developing an idea of what would constitute, what would define a reason for you to buy or sell a market, and and also the, what would define you're getting out of that trade. You know, because you, you, if you just decide where to get in, you don't have a process yet. You have to also know where you get out. Now, getting out, you don't have to know where to get out if you're profitable. That that you can just kind of you know follow the market up and raise a stop or whatever. But you do have to know where you get out when you're wrong. Um, so that's a process of experimenting. And, you know, initially, if people have never traded, I, I advise they do paper trading because while it's not the real thing, while it doesn't have the emotions, if you can't make money paper trading, then there's no reason to try it with real money. And if you get to the point where you have a methodology that and you've tested in paper trading and it seems to work, well, you still have to get past the hurdle of doing it with real money. I would suggest starting with a small amount. So it doesn't become, you don't fall into the trap of it being too emotional. And, uh, you know, gradually build up if it's working, you know. Uh, so uh, I, I, I always advise people never to take all their risk capital and to put it in the first time because most people don't succeed the first time. So you might as well learn your lessons with uh, losing less money. But eventually, if you ha- if you keep at it and you, you've come up with some valid approaches, uh, then it can come together. And, you know... You know you have an edge when the market's telling when your equity curve is telling you have an edge, right? So I mean, you your equity curve will be going up gradually over time. That's telling you, you know, with the proviso that you're you're not doing something that is dependent strictly on the market. So if you are trading stocks and you trade only long from the long side, which is perfectly fine, you don't have to trade the short side. It's difficult. But if you're trading only the long side and you've only been in a bull market and you're doing well, you don't really know anything unless you're doing much better, let's say, than the indexes. Uh, 
because what you may just be seeing is a reflection of the market, not your skills. So people do have to be careful to make sure they're not kidding themselves that what they're, they're trading, what the underlying market they're tra trading is not the source of the profits, rather it's their, their methodology. Speaking of the equity curve going up, there's uh, you mentioned in the book that it's harmful to look at consistency and that people shouldn't be looking for straight line performance. Yeah, Would you mind uh, talking about that? Sure, and it wasn't me who said that. It was one of the traders who brought this, uh, who brought that lesson up. And this point, you know, and I asked him, I asked him what, you know, what are the characteristics of losing traders? And what he said was ironically, one of the, one of the traits of, of and, and this is a fellow who for a number of years worked in, in a prop shop, so he saw a lot of traders come and go. And he said one of the things he's noticed about the traders who fall fall out is that they strive for consistency. Now, that sounds kind of surprising because you think, hey, isn't consistency good? Well, the problem with consistency in trading, I mean, it's, as a result, it's not a problem. But the, the problem is it, that's your objective. If your objective is overwhelmed by trying to be consistent, you've got to make money every month because you know, you're using part of your profits to pay your mortgage or something like that. That type of that type of objective of consistency is harmful because the markets don't really care about what you want. Uh, and the markets, whatever your approach is, there are times when the markets are going to be very amenable and there are times when the markets are just not going to give you any good opportunities or your approach is not going to work very well. But bottom line, the, the market environments change and the uh, the favorability to your approach can 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 be radically different in, in different time frames. So you could go through a period where the markets are just not favorable for what you're doing, and if you're driving for consistency, what's going to happen is you're going to take take trades that are outside your methodology. You're going to trade larger than you should to make back up some losses. You're going to do all these things that are diversions from what your from what your rules are. And that's going to end up causing you to lose money. So it's kind of ironic, but that striving for consistency can lead to being a losing trader because it will change the way you trade as opposed to if you're completely objective and followed the methodology exactly. And if there were no trades that, that fit your approach, you didn't take any trades, which is not easy to do. But if you had the discipline not to take the trades, then you would be better off. So that's what it means is... Striving for, for consistency can itself be detrimental. Of course, the result of consistency is good, but not striving for it as an overreaching objective. Uh, you, you mentioned markets changing over time. And I think a lot of us have experienced this, you know, uh, high frequency trading, there's a lot of computer power. Uh, in general, people know more about markets now than they did many years ago. And also, you see more, you know, passive inflows, a lot of Robin Hood traders. And which result in a very different market dynamic than maybe 10, 20 years ago. Do you think that early market wizards have a very different set of skills than newer ones? No. Um, you know, the, again, the methodologies are always different. And, you know, whether from, from, from in any book, the, the traders have all different methodologies anyway. So it's always been, it's always different for different people. It's different in different times. There are methodologies which are possible now because of computers, which weren't possible, let's say, 30 years ago. But but those are not the, you know, people will, will develop whatever their methodology is. The, 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 what takes this, what 
What makes traders profitable, those characteristics don't change. I mean, yes, the marks have changed dramatically. We don't we have electronic trading instead of pits. We have we have tremendous computing power, uh, both in terms of you know supercomputers, you know, for those firms that might need that type of processing power, but even down to the simple PC having enormous computing power compared to what you know what existed. In fact, PCs didn't even exist when I did, you know, for the track records that were formed by the original market wizards. I mean, they existed when I did the book, but during their history of trading, a lot of that was pre-PC. So, yeah, there have been enormous changes. Uh, and, of course, you have the high-frequency trading, et cetera, et cetera. But the skills that successful traders demonstrate don't change. I mean, you, you know, they still – risk management was important. 30 years ago is important 100 years ago. It's important now. It'll be important 50 years from now. You know, So those type of things don't change. Uh, the need to be very disciplined uh, doesn't change. The, the ability to be flexible and whatever your methodology is, if, it, if you're wrong, to be able to, to admit it and get out. Um, and if you see that the opposite side is correct, to even be able to reverse your position, that type of uh, ability is is important. These are characteristics and traits. Um, you know, the the ability to have patience to to uh, to wait for the right trades, not to jump the gun. You know, uh, patience is a difficult trait to have, and uh, I don't particularly have it myself. I would say, so um, you know, these things don't change. So the mark has changed, but not the characteristics and types of inner skills required to to be on the winning side instead of the losing side. Do you know how many of market, like the, the older market wizards have stayed with their old tried and true strategies and how many have had to change over time? I, yeah, I don't know that as a statistic because uh, I don't, I, you know, most cases I have maintained contact with people I've interviewed. Uh, and even if I did, I wouldn't necessarily have that statistic. But I do know in the process that that people, you know, the, the approaches change. They need to change, uh, because uh, things that used to work can stop working. Uh, I've got an example. There's actually one systematic trader in this un- unknown market wizards book um, who, well, he, you know, he came into trading. He wasn't a trader by desire originally or anything like that. He was actually a software you know, developer. And it's through his software. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Where that he got into trading, uh, but once he did, sort of he used his software skills, and and so he's developed many systems over the years, and he's, he keeps every system he ever developed, so he can he can pull up on his screen instantaneously. We're talking about any system he traded in a given year. He can pull it up. You can see how it did up to when he traded, how it's done since then, and so forth. So now, interestingly, when he started out, he had a he had a group of systems he was trading, and he, and he made money consistently. And then one year, they just stopped, seemed like they stopped working. They they were losing month after month, and he made a decision that the markets have speeded up, and he needed to change. He was using the close, and he decided to uh, that he had to put, put the trade on before the close. And part of the things he was looking for were volume, let's say, and and so he would like anticipate by the partial volume intraday what the ending volume would be and stuff like that. So he started, so he switched to that. But what was what was fascinating was that when he pulled up, I said, Well, how are the original systems done, you know, after you stop trading? And it's the most amazing thing. It's sort of like a hill going up, and then he starts going down, and he gets out of it. And since that day, it's never made money again. It's lost money every year. So, 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 you know, you need to be able to change. That's kind of a dramatic example. Um, but, you know, there's another example in this book of trader who uh, traded events like central bank announcements and stuff. And so at one time he would be very prepared, very ready, and would be, would have his finger in a mouse, which he still does, but, but would be ready with that order. So when he heard the central bank banker say something, he would immediately uh, be able to uh, execute the order, and um, you know uh, it turned. You know, turned out as more years went by, and the, the uh, uh, programming became more sophisticated. Where now there were programs that could analyze speech, and on um, certain words or phrases coming up, could execute quickly. The computer could execute more quickly than the trader. So he had to change his approach. He's in fact, he, in that particular aspect of that type of trade, he went from, from trying to get in right away, getting the first bird up, to tr- waiting for the first bird to get overdone and going the other way. So people have to adapt uh, to uh, the changing markets.
And for people not adapting, I guess, some of them blew up their accounts. And you often hear a lot of stories, sometimes pretty amusing stories. It feels like most successful traders have sometimes in their career blown up their account or maybe even multiple times. Almost like a rite of passage to become a successful trader. Do you think that failure is necessary to become a successful market wizard? Yeah, uh, yes and no. So many, as you know, many of the people I interviewed, even though they're phenomenally successful, uh, blew up once or more times early. You know, so so certainly early failure does not foreordain uh, you know long term failure. You know, that 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 part is certainly. There are some people though. Uh, who were successful from the very beginning. So, you know, it works both ways. Now, the thing about failure, though, is that um, one common trait among traders, uh, successful traders, is that they place a lot of emphasis on failure and learning from failure. Uh, probably the, the, the person who's made the most of it uh, made, uh, is Ray Dalio, uh, from Bridgewater, who's you know Bridgewater being the world's largest hedge fund, uh, and he built this whole firm. You know, which when I interviewed him was like a thousand people or something like that. But he, he built this firm on on a philosophy that you learn from mistakes. And he has this book called Principles, which everybody who joins the firm has to read. And a lot of those principles have to do with learning from failure. And and uh, the idea is. You use failure to improve your process, okay? So, and, and he found that from the very, very beginning of his trading career. Uh, so, um, so, so learning from mistakes, and, and a number of traders that I've, many, many traders I've interviewed, uh, particularly notable in this, this most recent book, keep diaries of every trade they've done and are, are very careful to note what, they, what, what went wrong and, and if so that it becomes a learning lesson. I mean, you could say that failure is how traders become better. You know, learning from failure, I should say, is how traders become better traders. On that topic, what do you think defines a good trader and a great trader? What's the difference? Well, you know, I think part of it is just um, some people, I think, have just an innate, just an innate talent for it, uh, just just to they're just able to hone in on the market in a way that most people aren't. Uh, and uh, I mean, I can think of, go back to my own experience uh, as a, back in the, my beginning of my, my career, um, this is way back in the early 70s. Uh, this is when Marcus, when I took Mark, Michael Marcus's job, he still was in New York. He left to become a trader. And uh we would, I, uh, you know, we talked when we, when I, when I was moving in, he was moving out, and we stayed in contact, and we we would get together for lunch, or, you know, uh, every few weeks and so forth. Like, so we kept we kept that contact, and we talked markets, obviously. Now I remember I was uh, at that time one of the markets I covered was cotton, and I was you know I was a, supposedly a cotton expert, and I did what any economist would do. Uh, you know, or economics trained uh, person would do. So I went through and I, I looked at all the markets uh, in that post World War II period, and I did all my analysis and whatever. And uh, in that particular instance, it turned out that most of the markets had been dominated by government loan programs, so you didn't really have free market equilibrium. So there were only a few markets that were pertinent. But of those markets, I, I assessed that the current year was was like the most bullish of any uh, in the post-World War II period. We were at like about 25 cents then, and 
I thought we would go back to the highs, you know, the same type of situation of the most bullish market, which would have, which was around 33, 34 cents. So that, and, and once it got up to there, uh, I kind of thought that the market was getting sort of over, you know, overdone and would, would, would be vulnerable. Well, Mike, I remember seeing Michael, who didn't do all this analysis, but um, he could, Michael had the skill to like look at a hundred different things and know which one was important. And he recognized that that year was the first time the PRC, China, um, at that time, PR called People's Republic of China, um, was uh, buying American, was buying cotton in, in for the first time, and they were buying in large amounts. And he recognized that that was the the key factor. So it's that type of skill. So I looked at everything, but he understood that that was the key factor. And he said, no, Jack, this market's going a lot higher. And, uh, you know, ultimately went to 99 cents. Uh, so, you know, he was totally right. I was I was obviously wrong. I mean, luckily, I didn't, you know, I, I, I didn't have money to... Yeah, in fact, I went short. I remember thirty-three and didn't have enough much you know, enough money. And luckily, I had so little money I got stopped out because I didn't have any more funds at thirty-five. Fortunately, uh, so uh, you know that's a good example. So it's something that he has. It's like an innate skill to be able to identify what is the key factor. Uh, so I don't think you know that's you know that's why I would answer that. Speaking of your trading, you've written books on fundamental analysis, technical analysis, futures trading. What, what kind of trading do you do yourself? Yeah, I ultimately evolved to uh, technical, uh, well, technical for a long time now. Uh, and uh, and now really just charts. So all I use is charts. And uh, I just pick, uh, and I'm not I'm not a trend trader. I'm not a counter. I'm, I'm actually, I, I can trade with the trend. I can trade counter trend. I'm just looking for, you know, uh, chart points where I think the odds of the market either, you know, going in a in the same direction or a reversing direction are, in my mind, greater than 50-50. Uh, I think it's a spot where the market will either reverse, or when I say spot, I don't mean necessarily an exact set, but if I have a little zone that I expect either the market will reverse, or I believe that the market is, is let's say, consolidating or will continue out in the same direction, but if I see what is some pattern that I think will lead to a next price swing, I will take that trade. I will have a stop in at the same time I put the trade on. And so uh, if I'm right, I'll make, you know, more than I'll lose when I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'm out at a, you know, at a predetermined amount of loss. So basically I combine, I would say in one sentence what I do is I combine chart reading with, uh, with money management. And my chart reading doesn't necessarily mean classical. I mean, I sometimes will will trade opposite a classical pattern because I think, you know, the market has just failed the classical pattern and that itself is a signal. What kind of markets and instruments are you trading? Uh, I trade, well, I trade futures mostly. Lately, I've been trading a lot of stocks. Uh, uh, so from time, you know, so that sometimes I'll trade stocks uh, a lot, uh, but most usually it's mostly futures. Uh, and I will trade options in, in in both those markets as a as an extra tool, and that's basically that's basically it. If we look at all of the markets wizards you uh, interviewed and all the traders you met as well, do you, do you see more people leaning towards technical analysis, for example? Uh, no, I don't know. Uh, 
it's hard to say. It's not a it's not a scientific sample. So uh, I I run into people doing fundamentals and technical all the time. So and sometimes combination of the two. So I don't know if there's. Yeah, I would say pro certainly chart analysis, technical analysis has become much more popular, you know, than it used to be. You know, dec many, many decades ago. Uh, we had the balances. Now I don't know. Being a trader yourself and having interviewed, you know hundreds of uh, very successful traders. What is your take on effective markets? On, on what kind of markets? Yeah, like the efficient market hypothesis? Yeah, no, I don't think the markets are efficient. In fact, I wrote a book uh, called Market Sense and Nonsense. I've got an entire chapter uh, of why I don't think they're uh, they're efficient. Uh, so part of those reasons are, are kind of you know, philosoph theoretical reasons or philosophical reasons. And some are just empirical, you know. So, uh, for example, um, you know, I've interviewed traders who's who have track records that just are beyond the realm of possibility in um, in terms of you know, markets being efficient. For example, the one I like to use is Ed Thorpe, uh, who maybe is known to most of the world because he wrote his book "Beat the Dealer." He's a mathematician, uh, uh, and uh, he developed many. Uh, he ran two hedge funds. He developed many. He was the originator of many strategies. He actually was the. He actually this kind of worked out the Black Scholes model in a slightly different format, but equivalent format as the Black Scholes. Many years before they published their famous paper, and was using it to make money. I uh, didn't publicize it, and he did a lot of other things. But anyway, the first hedge fund he ran was 19 years. Yeah, and he had three losing months. He had three losing months in, in that entire period. And, um, you know, it turns out those losing months were all less than 1%. So his gains were larger than his, his losses, obviously. Uh, I did a probability calculation on, you know, what, what it was, you know, I made the simplifying assumption that his gains were equal to his losses, which is conservative because his gains were larger. But that's equivalent to saying, what's the odds of getting uh, 225 heads out of 228 tosses? And that probability is, uh, the number is so, so, so small that people can't relate to it. So I came up with an analogy. And uh, the analogy basically is, uh, you, if you pick an atom in the entire mass of the Earth, and then randomly pick one another atom, randomly, and you end up hitting the same atom, that probability is larger than his record. So you've got you've got empirical proofs of things that are impossible. Then you've got uh, Richard Thaler, who's a fam famous pioneer of behavioral economics, had this wonderful proof, not proof, a wonderful example. Uh, there's a closed-end fund that had the uh, ticker symbol CUBA, Cuba, which is, um, it's it basically, uh, they, they, they hold uh, Central American, uh, uh, Stocks and maybe South American too, but anyway, the ticket symbol was CUBA. Well, any uh, most closed end funds traded a discount. I don't, we don't need to go on the tangent on that tangent uh, in this in this short period. Let's just take that as a given. And like like a typical closed end fund, this was trading at about a fifteen percent discount. Uh, then one day it went from a fifteen percent discount to a seventy percent uh, premium, and. Uh, <laughs> So what happened? You know, the, you know that's that's extraordinary. That, 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 that means it goes from the value of its portfolio was trading the value of its portfolio 
it was trading 15% below the value of its portfolio. Then the next day, it's trading 85% higher than the value of its portfolio. Well, what the hell happened? Well, what happened was that President Obama announced we were going to move towards normalization with Cuba. Now, the, the funny thing about this is that there are, there are no stocks in Cuba. So obviously, they didn't hold, have any holdings in Cuba. And you know, even if there were stocks in Cuba, the, the law wouldn't have permitted you know, any American, you know, company to invest, you know, in, in Cuba. So it was preposterous. Of course, it went back down in like a day or two later. But those type of things tell you that the markets can't possibly be efficient because that, those, those are empirical proofs. And like, there, I got many others. But then there's other things like just the, the reason people get it wrong. Um, you know, people say, you know, well, the theory says everything is known. And any new information, you know, everybody has the same information, and any new information is instantly known. So how could you possibly get ahead? Well, that's like saying, you know, there's a there's a chess tournament, and everybody knows all the rules, and everybody knows has all the chess books. So how could anybody be better? Well, obviously you got people who can who can crush everybody else because they're just more skilled. It's not that they know something that it, you know, nobody else knows, it's that they're just more skillful in applying what the knowledge is. Same in markets. And there's many, many others. Like I said, I got a whole chapter on it, but the, the short answer, no, I don't believe in the efficient market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Offices. Although I should say that the markets act close to like they're efficient. And for people who are not skilled, they would actually be better off investing as if they were efficient. So in other words, for most people who have no skill in, in the markets, investing and trading, their best, their best, <laughs> their best decision is probably buying a low-cost uh, index fund and holding it for 30 years, you know. Uh, that which is the epitome of what you would do if the markets were efficient. So it's kind of ironic. But most people are actually better off acting as if the markets were efficient, even though I think there's incontrovertible proof that the markets are not efficient. So you don't believe that anyone can take advantage of an inefficient market? No. You know, you know why. I'll give you a simple example. One of the reasons for inefficiencies is the thing that's left out of all the mathematical models, because it can't be modeled, is human emotion. And, and so I, I use an analogy when I give talks. I put up a, a recipe for chicken soup, and I got a bunch of ingredients. I ask people, can anybody tell me what, what ingredient is missing? And the missing ingredient is chicken. And usually people spot it, somebody spots it. And, and my, 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 my point is that the efficient market hypothesis is, you know, is a theory of markets like a chicken soup recipe without the chicken. Well, what's the chicken in the markets? The chicken in the markets is, is human human emotion. So for example, when you have internet stocks in the late nine, you know, late 1990s go up 600% literally in a year and a half. And then they, they went by the way, they went all the way back down the next year and a half. But when you have that type of thing happen, 
Well, you could you could see there are companies that should have no reason trading at anything of value, let alone go from 10 to 200. You could see that. And you can be 100% right, but you can go broke trying to short it. So you can spot a market bubble, but you don't know if the NASDAQ is going to go, is going to stop at 3,000 or 4,000 or 5,000, 5,000 plus where it eventually did, I think, or go to 7,000. You don't know. So you could be right and and still lose money. So even though the market, that, that those, those moves were totally a total classic example of inefficiency because the market went up six times went all the way back down the whole cycle in, in three years with no real big change in fundamentals. It was just a matter of a hysteria on the upside and then a panic on the downside. Oh, well, not so much a panic on the downside. Panic, you know, yeah, eventually at the end. But initially, it was just a matter of the music stopped. And, uh, you know, and once it started going, there was no reason for the stocks to be there. So they went all the way back down. Um, so that's why it's you can you can have an efficiency, but it may be very difficult to exploit. Speaking of the late 19s, what is your take on today's market with the SPAC craze, IPOs and, and tech stocks without profits and sometimes even without revenue? Yeah, um, well, it depends on the individual, depends on this particular situation. I don't think I don't think today compares. I don't think you have anything like uh, you had, let's say, in the late 1990s. I don't think it's that type of situation. Uh, you can certainly make a case for markets being stock market being highly highly priced. I mean that's certainly true, uh, but it's not. I don't think it's necessarily a bubble situation. Um, I think it's more a situation where theoretically you could get a correction, but I don't think I don't think you get a, a, a situation where you would go like all the way back down to where we were in March type of thing. So I don't think it's the same exact same type of thing. Uh, we have a question from a listener, a gaming investor, and he asks, how does a trader develop an edge in the market? And how does one distinguish this as a consistent edge uh, against if it's luck, survivorship bias, or just the current market climate? Yes. So since everybody has a different methodology, there's a million different ways to come up with it. Uh, and there's no formula for it, you know. <laughs> Uh, if anybody's telling it as a formula, I wouldn't believe it. Um, and like I said before, the way you know it, it's over time. Unfortunately, trading is real time. You can't speed it up. I mean, you could do simulations and historical things to see if it worked, but it's still, you have to see it executed in real time, and that's a slow process. So as you're trading, if you're making money, you could build up the commitment to that slowly but it's just a matter of over time. So for young listeners who are just starting out trading, what's your best advice to them? Okay. Uh, first of all, you have to discover you have to discover what your approach is. Beginning the beginning process would be to read, just you know, find you know, you know, look at books, look at lots of market-oriented books and see what seems like it would be interesting and try reading those, try you know, you have to discover what area you want to focus on. So there's no way no, you can really do that necessarily without at least reading. So it's not like you're reading to necessarily copy somebody, but it's to get ideas. So so just reading broadly on different books about markets, different trading, etc., is a beginning process. And then with that background knowledge, <clears throat> watch markets and try to give take. Take ideas that you've gotten and 
experiment and uh, and empirically try to develop some sort of method. And once you're ready, like I said, the next step would be try applying it using paper trading. Or you can have like a lots nowadays you can do this electronically and have an account that trades fictitious money, and that's probably the easiest way to do it. It's not the same thing because the emotions aren't there, but at least you could see if the ideas you have work or don't work. Uh, if they do work, then start with a small amount of money, and start, you know. I, so two things about this uh, uh, about starting: you start with uh, less than all your risk capital because you don't want to blow it all on your first uh, endeavor because odds are most people are not going to do well the first time around. And second thing is. Whatever amount you start with, uh, let's just say somebody starts with $100,000, you want to pick some number where if you lose that amount cumulatively, the day that happens, or the, you know, let's say you do it on a closing basis, the day you, let's say, you decide you're, you're willing to risk 20% of that, the day your account closes below $80,000, the next morning you just liquidate everything. So uh, it basically limits you from blowing too much money uh, at one, you know, on the first try, and it also means that if you're, if that's been your experience, you're obviously not you're doing something that's not right. So you might as well go back to the drawing board and do some more work. So uh, and then once you do start, and if you get ahead by a certain amount, then my advice is bring that type of liquidation point to break even, and eventually to something higher than break even, and. Um, and just gradually build as you're successful, rather than trying to do what people do out of greed, which is, well, you know, thinking will be, well, I'd rather have more money on because if I'm right, I want to make more money. But that's the wrong way to think about it. The way to think about it is if you have too much on in the beginning, you greatly increase your odds that you're, going to, you're not going to succeed, that you're going to blow out. So better to start with a smaller amount than gradually build it as you prove you're able to make money in the markets. That's the whole process in a nutshell. You mentioned books. Do you have any books you you would recommend to our listeners? Well, you know, um, not going besides, I'm not going to recommend my my own out of self interest. But um, basically, I, mean, I haven't read a lot of market books, but the couple that I would recommend are uh, which a lot of people I've interviewed have recommended, which is Reminiscence of a Stock Operator, which is a book a hundred years old, and the markets are different, but some of the ideas there are classic. Uh, and uh, for people who, uh, I think just for general risk management and chart kind of uh, information, uh, Peter Brandt Peter Brandt wrote wrote a book called I think uh, Diary of a Commodity Trader. I forget exactly, but just go with a I think in Diary of a Commodity Trader. But he, he basically noted all his trades for a year, and so you can see how he thinks and how he manages money. So I think that's a good book. Uh, actually, a number. Of, Traders in this in my most recent book, even though they were fundamental traders, he still cited Brandt as an influence for the money management factor. Um, there are lots of books that are you know good books about markets, not necessarily books that'll make you a better trader, but you know like uh, you know when genius failed is a great book about uh, uh, by Lowenstein, a great book about uh, long term capital, and there are lots of books like that are really good books, but they're not necessary. If your goal is to, to learn how to trade, those books don't necessarily teach you how to learn how to trade. So, um, and, and like I say, I myself, uh, yeah, I, I actually 
haven't read a lot of you know market books, and so it's hard for me to, to recommend any. We will put uh, links anyway to the books you mentioned, and we will also, of course, put a, a link to your books. Uh, and I and I strongly recommend as well to to read, especially the first Market Wizards, and of course the new one as well. I, I think it's especially a good way to just like you mentioned to to try and find a style that attracts you, basically. So one uh, final closing question that we always ask our uh, uh, guests. What was your best and worst investment and what have you learned from those experiences? Okay, uh, uh, so the worst one is hard. There's probably a couple, but I I, I mean, the one that sticks most in mind uh, is, um, well, actually, it's a prelude. Well, okay, so there was a point, I don't remember how many years ago, about five years ago, roughly, I don't remember exactly, but I had had a position in FXI, which is the Chinese uh, ETF, and uh, had had it, I, you know, from earlier on and sort of had a good, really good profit in it. Uh, I wasn't necessarily thought it was a top or anything. But uh, on the other hand, other indexes are going up. And I, at the time, I thought retail, the retail index seemed kind of high priced. And um, I saw so what I did is I went short an equivalent amount of dollars in the retail index um, ETF. So uh, I effectively there was... Was was long FXI and, and short the uh, the retail uh, uh, index, and one day the FXI was down two percent on the same day the retail index was up two percent. Now the mistake wasn't being in opposition. The mistake was what I was long in was the weakest you know uh, sector, and what I was short in was the strongest sector. And I knew better, and I kind of certainly noticed it. But the only thing I could have done right at that point was just to take the 4% hit that day, you know, in that combined position. And I procrastinated for about a week or two and I eventually got out. But that was a, that, that was like the stupidest, worst mistake I can think of. Because I knew that you want to be you want to be long the strongest, short the weakest. And I was exactly the opposite. I knew enough to know I was on the wrong side. But it was such a big move in one day, both indexes going in opposite direction. Which actually, in hindsight, is was should have been an indicator. There was an even more reason to get out of it. So that's a kind of that sticks in my mind as the, as the, like the most the stupidest worst trade I can think of. Um, and as far as the best, the best trades probably were back in late two thousand eight. Uh, at the end of two thousand eight, I thought we were in a classic panic market. I saw stuff like the FXI being down 75%, XME, the metals index being down 75%. I kind of thought like, Jesus, these are, there's basic value here. It's just a matter of time. So, um, and the time to buy it is when everybody's in the panic. So I, I was a little early for the exact bottom, but what I did is I bought leaps, you know, uh, leap calls. So, uh, so buying calls in the midst of that panic was probably the, because that it worked exactly like I thought, you know, and it did, you know, it made many multiples, obviously. But uh, so that was probably the best trade. Thanks a lot for meeting us today and being so generous with your time as well. It was great having you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was everything from us this week. We sincerely hope that you enjoyed this special edition of Market Makers in English. Just a reminder, this podcast is only for informational purposes and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. If you're an international listener and like this podcast, please let us know at podcast at marketmakers.se 
or on Twitter at MarketMakersPod. Who knows? Maybe we'll do another international episode in the future. Yeah, and please rate us on iTunes and check out our website on marketmakers.se. A link is, of course, in the show notes, as well as all the links that Jack mentioned in the interview. And last but not least, thank you for listening this week. And have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.